Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Beckoning Podcast, a Vampire the Masquerade and World of Darkness in general podcast where we uh, bring in guests, we have a good time, we talk about uh, specific topics that are important to tabletop role-playing and the World of Darkness lore. Today, we have me, I'm Josh, but more importantly, we have the Primogen, Huddy, our regular co-hosts, but also Rufflejacks. Hello. You are, uh, as you said, an award-winning LARP designer. You're a writer. You're you're all sorts of things. I am. Yes. Uh, so hi, I'm Jacqueline Brick. Um, I'm also known as Jax or Rufflejax. Um, I've been playing games since I was six, so about since '98 because I am baby. Um, I've been writing LARPs for about, I'm gonna say eight years, and I've been writing, I've been freelance writing and professionally uh, designing tabletop games for about five years. Um, I am a freelancer for Onyx Path, for Ulysses Spele, for uh, Genesis of Legend, and a couple other companies as well. Um, you may know my work from Vampire the Requiem 2nd Edition, from Changing the Lost 2nd Edition, or if you want to get spicy, from Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition, in which I wrote all of the safety rules that people were kind of up in arms about for a while. Uh, so I saw the waves yes. uh, on the horizon, but uh, seems to have passed, which is, which is fortunate. Oh, uh, it comes up again occasionally. Yeah. We're better off with them, for sure, than without mm -hmm. them. But, but I mean the the, the safety rules, not not the, not the waves. No, 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 not the, not the waves. Yeah. No. So uh, very good to have you here. Uh, and as people have probably surmised, the topic of today we'll be talking about safety, consent, and uh, I guess in in cult divinity laws they call it the horror contract. Players, yes. basically the agreement between storyteller and players about where how far are we taking this? What are we okay with? What are we not? Um, so uh, let's start talking a little bit. We can start uh, the topic with uh, your uh, history with the V5 uh, project with okay. uh, with the safety rules, if that's okay with you. Like, uh, yeah. how did it come about? Like, what what was the uh, who who spurred this initiative to include that in the in the rule book? Um, so V5 had been in process for several years at the time, and then an article out by Dice Dog, I think the the, uh, the blog was, uh, came out essentially calling um, the new White Wolf, the, the Paradox-owned White Wolf crypto-fascists, and saying that they were designing a version of the game specifically to cater to fascists and cater to people who wanted to have an unsafe, quote-unquote, extreme experience at the gaming table. And this was very much not their plan at all, but yeah. it blew up in the gaming world. And I had at this point already included safety rules in Changeling the Lost, uh, second edition as part of the storytelling section. So Matthew Dawkins and Jason Carl reached out to me and said, hey, we really need you to do safety rules for Vampire 5th Edition. I'm like, mm, I don't know. You know, I heard a lot of stuff about it. And, you know, I I would love to, but you're, I thought this was already published. And they said, no, we're going to publish it, you know, by Gen Con. And I think 
At that point, Gen Con was in early August, and this was early July. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I'm not sure. They said, we will pay you $3,000 to write safety rules. And I said, okay. <laughs> um, good, good, good incentive, yeah. Yes, because uh, being paid a dollar a word is much more than most freelancers get paid. Um, if no, do not get into gaming if your goal is to make money. Um, if you want to make money, that's great. Maybe find another hobby. Um, but no, I really enjoyed writing the safety rules for Vampire 5th Edition. Um, I wrote the the intro at the beginning about don't use this game to be a monster yourself. Um, I wrote on including fascist themes in your game because if you look at Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition, especially with the Camarilla, you're going to get a lot of fascist overtones. Yeah. Um, because the... Uh, society of vampires is based on fascism. It is the idea that whoever has the strongest will and the strongest power should be in charge. And, you know, people are valued based on whatever they can do for other people and the collective will and blah, 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 blah. All the the stuff you might find in Umberto Echoes or fascism, fascism, and that's deliberate because vampires are predators. They are monsters. And you have to know that going in and you have to be willing to say, look, I am going to play a monster in this game, but I am going to be kind and respectful of my fellow players at the table. Because something that I think people don't understand, at least those who don't really sort of rock the idea of, you know, being respectful of their fellow players, is when you are kind and respectful to your fellow players, there's so much darker shit you can do. Yeah. Besides like, oh, all of my ghouls are in bondage gear and I'm leaving them hanging upside down, suspended in a warehouse, waiting for me to come back. Cause that's so spooky. Like, okay, you're playing with themes of abandonment, but you're not really getting into the depths of it or why you're doing it or what effect that might have on someone. And there's a difference between, you know, suffering porn and okay, let's actually get some catharsis out of yeah, this. Yeah, it's interesting too, because V5 in my uh, experience is much more a venture back to the early first and second edition of Vampire, which was much more focused on, <laughs> on the Anarchs and their struggle against the fascist uh, elders or the, the oppressive mm-hmm. elders. But then in, in Revised and, and in, in V20, V20 being a little bit more agnostic to the setting but it was the emphasis was much more on Camarilla versus Abad so the Camarilla was in a way painted up more as the the good guys of vampire society because they at least had humanity but Sabat had the paths and the and and were basically evil um so I, I i can imagine that a lot of the pushback from this from the community is because a lot of people myself included were raised on revised and v20 and never really saw this anarch uh camarilla struggle that that's so much more prevalent now in v5 hmm. I, I, oh. I started on revised and i okay. think i've noticed now that i've started playing way more v5 than any other version is that while i had a lot of fun playing as a vampire going on adventures it was a uh, a lot less intense of an experience than the v5 rules kind of uh guide you into yeah. And there was a lot less um, intense emotional horror elements than there are in my modern campaigns. I think that's possibly uh, a combination of the new edition 
and me and my friends personal preference for how we play but yeah it's uh, it's it's evolved in a really really exciting way and yeah gotten to touch on a lot of topics um that i wouldn't have otherwise which is really exciting yeah <clears throat> um but you you wrote the these uh these uh, safety rules because i i seem to recall there was also some controversy around the uh prequel games that were released uh for v5 as well the mobile games so we'll not go too much into that but i know that white wolf they were kind of stuck in the middle between people who who really wanted the super dark stuff and people who were like we're not in the 90s uh well it also didn't help that they asked zach sabbath to write their visual novel which I mean, it was a standard Zack Sabbath production. Like, it wasn't... It was okay. It was not interesting in the least, but it had, like, a solid structure to it. And it hit the notes they wanted it to hit. It just wasn't particularly inventive or interesting in any way. And And someone later said that, you know, the reason they hired him is for the controversy. And that was not one of their better moves. And I'm fully willing to admit that. But the issue with bringing that into V5 is Zach never wrote any of the material in V5. He did not touch any of that material. He did not edit any of that material. He was not a consultant for V5. Zach Sabbath had no interaction with the V5 books. And that's important to note because that was one of my caveats coming in is if you are asking me to write safety rules for something zach sabbath has touched i will need more money <laughs> so yeah yeah it's uh it's really been uh been a lot of uh up hills and and um uh difficult times for the white wolf's uh, staff but right now they're kind of riding on a on a high tide i think with the release from both uh, modifius and uh and the onyx path um but how was how was the reception like because you you wrote the these uh mm-hmm. safety um safety guides for for the book and i know that the reception was mixed uh, and this was released. I, I think there was a lot of miring with the other, the uh, a Call of Cthulhu game that was released yes. roughly around the same time. Uh, no, Call of Cthulhu was actually released recently. All right, right. Um, and that was Fate of Cthulhu, and that that also included safety rules. I did not write those safety rules, but they're excellent. Mm. Um. And Matthew Galt, who wrote the How White Wolf Convinced Its Fans Its Games Aren't for Nazis article, which is an excellent article, and it's still on Vice, and you should go read it, um, also wrote the article about the backlash to Fate of Cthulhu, which I was also interviewed in. Hmm. Um, But Matthew Galt, by the way, is an excellent gaming journalist. I love him to death. He's super cool. Um, He covers a lot of shifts in the sort of paradigms of gaming and how sort of the cultural and emotional zeitgeist is tied into gaming. And one of the things I really like in his coverage is he talks a lot about how we turn to games for comfort and catharsis. And I think that's especially important in horror gaming because... 
I know for me personally, I've been playing and running a lot of horror games during this pandemic because it's a way to sort of take all of the fear that I'm not really allowing myself to feel and put it into a fictional context that it feels safer and more productive to feel that fear. So, yeah. So being able to have a group of people where I can be like, hey, I want to feel this specific kind of fear with you guys for four hours or two hours or however long is incredibly productive for me. And I think safety rules in a lot of ways give us a structure to start having that conversation. Yeah. Um, and it's, I mean, you, you've, you've, you've had some experience doing this. Uh, you wrote, you wrote similar rules, as you said, for changeling, the last second edition, and you also wrote rules for, for, uh, Requiem, Vampire Requiem revised second yes. edition. Uh, I did not write the safety rules for that, okay. but I did, um, actually my first ever work for Onyx Path was on the Google chapter for Half Damned mm. for Vampire the Requiem yeah. Second Edition. Absolute dream project. I love ghouls. I care a lot about ghouls. They're great. Um, but one of the things I wrote in, in a sidebar, is, hey, your ghoul might have a mental illness. That's extremely reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. They are bound against their will to a monster that is using them in frankly abusive and traumatic ways please don't make light of that Mm. like don't don't use this to be like oh i'm such a wacky crazy ghoul whatever like actually interrogate what that means to that character and like that was that was a sidebar that i kind of expanded on in later books but Hmm. i feel like that is I pressed the wrong button there. I feel like that is a central theme of the the safety and uh, like talking to your friends as you play, which is not just doing a thing because you think it would be cool or because you think like it will maybe evoke certain horror aspects, but like for for me at least going into a horror game you want to encounter those situations because you want to explore what possible consequences they have through play right it's it's not just oh there's uh, a nazi over there who is uh, like uh goose stepping all over my antifa friends or whatever um let's go punch them in the face which you know not an unreasonable expectation to have but um uh actually um interrogating like the fallout from that situation yep um which i don't i don't know how other people play their games i i guess i can never really know what's going on at other people's tables and that's up to them but uh sometimes i wonder whether they're just like going from thing to thing and just like saying that that something's happened and then moving on from that to something completely different i i don't know how everyone else feels about this but like there seems to be a slight disconnect between like uh playing to find out what happens and uh like making something spooky happen for effects or like yeah, yeah yeah For the meme of it or like just to get a reaction out of your friends i don't know 
I think, yeah, um, yeah uh, I, I agree with that. And I think, Huddy, you, I really hope I'm not misremembering now, but I did give out the consent sheet to all of you when we started playing uh, Chicago Stories, correct? Mm-hmm. I believe I posted it because uh, the, the, the Monte Cook uh, Consenting Gaming uh, consent sheet. And uh, this was your first time. Now, was it your first time role playing, or was it your first time role playing on on camera? Let's first see. time role playing at all ever. All right. I've only played one game yeah, of Vampire, yeah. and it's with you and Josh. And that was uh, that's really great. Because then I would really like to hear your opinion on how like how was you what was your reaction when you when you saw this cassette sheet? Like what what did you think? I know you you told me uh, it's it's fine, but I also wanted like what what was your impression of that when you saw it? Um, well, I had already known, like I've said before, I'm, I'm a super baby when it comes to the knowledge of all of this stuff. I make a lot of videos about it. I read a lot of the books. I've read the revised edition. I've read 20th anniversary edition. Of course, I've read the fifth edition books. Um, and I already knew about the consent form and I'm all for it. Um, but you know, I sent mine back blank to you because, um, I don't know. Uh, I can imagine there are a lot of people, and like Josh said, I don't know what people do with their games. I I guess that there are people out there that have things for shock value just for the sake of shock value. I don't know. That's not that's not a thing for me. So I would never even consider it, right? Um, so I sent it back blank because I. No offense, you guys. I use the game as sort of catharsis for, you know, because I put a lot of my personal backstory into it. And I'm the type of person where I've been through so much trauma that I'm able to compartmentalize it enough that I can play it out and it doesn't, what you guys called it, what was it? The bleed? Bleed. The bleed. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm all for that consent form. But for me, I'm like, I don't need it. But I can imagine there are plenty of people who love playing vampire who need it. Yeah. yeah, and I think you're touching upon an interesting thing here because the fact that you return it blank meant that you read through it and went, okay, I'm fine with all this. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, like, I was I was actually going through the reviews for Monty Cook's Consenting Gaming right before we started because I was like, I'm going to read what some of the people are writing. Very, uh, very, uh, there's a lot of five stars and there's a lot of one stars for this product. And I, I think yeah, a lot of I people, see that happening. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people are saying, uh, how, I, don't uh, limit my fun, basically, to boil it down. Oh, I wrote a whole thread on this, but keep yeah. going. Sorry, yeah. let me just go find I, my... I think, I think so many people get caught up in in the idea that because something has been published and promoted, it's something that you have to employ. Um, and someone was writing this whole thing about like, oh, I prepared this and then I have to put it in the trash because one of my players doesn't want to play it. And I think that kind of... like you can have this consent form and everybody sends it in blank and there you go you can do whatever you want it's you don't have to do the consent form either if you're comfortable with your players but at this time we're in uh, we're in this world where uh going to a table at a convention is a thing that can happen and it's not just dungeons and dragons anymore because dungeons and dragons i wouldn't consider very challenging and they it can be of course in the field of emotional role playing but like cult divinity lost for example can be an extremely harrowing game with very mature topics and themes um and i'm going to be running it this weekend and uh, i i started writing a scenario then i was like i can't run this because i am have no idea who will be playing at my table <laughs> so i just scrapped it and went for something else and i'm still gonna hand like talk about consent and the x button but obviously i can't get to know my players 
quick enough for this game that I'm already planning. So I have to find this middle ground. And a consent sheet really helps me out because I can look at that and go like, okay, um, what can I like? What can I include in my game that I believe most people will be okay with? And I might still run into a scenario where someone will go, I'm not comfortable with this. So it's a tool to help you when you're playing with people you don't know, when you're playing online, and when you're playing with your friends. You might not know your friends completely. Um, but it's not it's not like a limiter that you put on your game and be like, okay, it's got to fit into this box. If you're playing with people you play with for 15 years, chances are you know what they what they want. Chances are you you know them enough to know, okay, let's not have this theme in our game because uh, several of us are not comfortable with it. But it's becoming increasingly more common that people are just joining groups because they can't play with people nearby or they don't have anyone nearby to play with. So they, their option is to go online. They have these pickup groups. It can be a pretty horrible experience if you don't have a session zero and set the, this framework. Um, sorry, went a little bit of a spiel there, but um, no, I just, I, it, makes me, it makes me upset that so many people look at everything that's published and go like, this is breaking my immersion into the setting. Like, you don't have to use it. It's your own copy of the game. Also, <laughs> immersion is a false god. Players are more important than the game. Sorry. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's a weird uh mindset that i i honestly can't fully uh, understand but it, it is one of those those things where if you truly feel like your your table doesn't need it then you don't have to use it but i'm not going to be playing at your table exactly yeah. <laughs> like the it, there are people there who really really want to get into it like i've played with some people who are like please hurt my character <laughs> and then but that's they always set it out with like one topic or one theme in mind and then everyone else is talking while people are creating their characters and they're like it's one of those things that's never come up but on the single occasion where it does come up I want there to be uh, someone there who uh, feels like they're comfortable enough to say, hold, hold on a second, or, and we have the, the tools and the, like the, the uh, social contract that says, like, as soon as someone says hold up, everyone just kind of stops or, or, and tries to fix stuff. Because like, you can't always see this stuff ahead of time. There's like a, a variety of situations, whether it's before the game in the session zero or during the game, where everyone can just go, "This is, this is cool," and then like there's there's a line up to which you can go, "This is not cool," and then every everyone knows where to stop. It's I don't I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling here at this point, but yeah, yeah. like. Um, there is there is a note in chat that I want to address real quick. Yes. Um, so, uh, Kaylee Evil says, My take on this is that formalizing these things seems odd, a bit off-putting. I feel more at ease when people ask the simple question, what do you want and what do you not want in a game? So, if I may take this in a bit of an NSFW direction for a moment. Um... My standard for safety in games is the same as my standard for safety in kink. 
just flat out like being able to have set ritual words and text that people can address and you know that this means this thing so if i say yellow you know that you need to slow down and check in with me and ask what's going wrong instead of you know during a really intense scene either in gaming or king grim like oh god no it hurts so much why are you doing this and you being able to check in with me and going do you actually want me to stop and just having a way that everybody understands a formalized way that everybody understands real quick this is what this means this is what the uh, proper answer is just makes everything so much easier yeah and i think uh, for example i'm i'm running changeling the lost uh second edition on on the onyx path and i handed out the consent sheet to my players there as, there as well but I think streaming a game, like there's so many layers of complexity to a game. And, and one of the worst scenarios I can imagine is streaming a game and either one of my players or me taking it to a place where someone's uncomfortable, someone's feeling uh, stressed out or worried or, or feels really bad about it, like it triggers some kind of reaction in them and them having to hold it back or me having to hold it back because there's the pressure of being on stream uh, you can't like you can't just say no and and like cut your well you can do that but a lot of people will feel the added pressure of that and i think there's an added pressure of playing at a table at a convention too because you're 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 with people you don't know or you're being watched by people you don't know and you're putting on a performance it, there's a huge difference in a role-playing group that's been together for 15 yeah. years and a role-playing group like honestly like ours that we did with uh, chicago stories none of us had role-played together before except for me and kitsu and and harry um, but even me and harry we still barely know each other so we'll still you know feeling the territory what's okay what's not okay uh these things take time and i think that it doesn't necessarily have to be formalized if you have the time sit down and have a session zero where you can go through this verbally but this is like a shortcut session zero thing like okay the the, the bare minimum like we can and, at least do this yeah and even during a session zero you can establish which safety tools you're comfortable running with like one of my favorite safety tools ever is the okay check-in which i find more comprehensive than the x card even though i love the x card like no no smack talk on the x card here it was designed by a friend of mine um and it's amazing but if i'm going to check in on someone i'm going to use the okay check-in which is this is the question never this this um i'm doing great i'm doing great i want more of this i'm not sure i'm not doing well super simple super easy and everything that's not a thumbs up or a double thumbs up just gets treated like a no we need to stop and check in and i think that's awesome but like i know some people don't enjoy using that so during a session zero we might decide we're going to use the x card or we might decide we're going to use something else um and like as kaylee evil's pointing out i happen to be a person who's very talky and open so do i and i have as huddy mentioned earlier i also have a great deal of trauma that I've, I'm used to compartmentalizing and integrating into myself 
and using gaming as catharsis, but sometimes people don't want me to put my trauma on the table and get catharsis and use it as a therapeutic session. And that's totally fine because that's not emotional labor they should have to do. So being able to be like, hey, I'd like to address this part of my trauma in game. Uh, is there a way we can do that safely is super helpful for a session zero. And I can honestly talk all day about session zero because the fact that having a game where you just sit and talk about what you want to experience and how you want to experience that is amazing. <laughs> not that not that I want to heap too much praise on Prim, make his ego too big, but he had an, <laughs> we had an amazing session zero. He was excellent. And he and I talked privately and he I gave him my backstory. I didn't the other players, I don't think I told Josh until after the game was over that that was my actual personal background. Um, so he was great and he incorporated it excellently and we talked about it and we I think Josh and Kitsu and all of us, we all had a great session zero. That's talking awesome. about our characters he's he's awesome and that's as much ego boosting as you're getting from me thank tonight. you <laughs> oh yeah uh and and going back to primogen's uh chicago stories thing so there was a scene in which my character seb was feeding at his club in like the third or fourth episode and so the situation was that he was at hunger four or five Five. Yeah, <laughs> that one so he uh he went to his club he found a drunk girl and then fed on her and then uh, like as soon as that like section was over i thought about it and was like shit that's just straight up sexual assault and i yep. i had like a moment where i was like i had to think to myself am, am i okay with what just happened because at the time i wasn't even thinking i was just rping the moment and then i thought back to it and was like okay no one raised anything I didn't feel like I had to raise anything. Every I, I, I feel good about this. Well, well, I mean, obviously it was a <laughs> shitty thing to do, but like, yeah, I, but I feel also having... it's it's your character that was yeah. like maybe perhaps one of the first times he's willingly taken advantage of someone who's out of drunk out of their mind, and he's a vampire. So in that regard, a character development point, but definitely something that if mm. someone had said in their in in their uh, consent sheet like i'm not okay with that i might have stepped in and be like okay we yeah yeah and, and that's or, yeah uh and that's where i was like well first off am i okay with this and then second off i didn't get stopped uh i we we had the talk about like who was okay with what and then i, I felt okay to move on from there so i was like yeah. cool we can go to that place um and I, I feel okay having played through that. And it was like a sort of check-in moment with myself, but also uh, I think that was a pretty fun scene to have played through. And we, uh, it, it, was, it was a perspective that I visited that I'd never really considered from that point of view before, which uh, was, I yeah. I want to ask you a question. If if we weren't live streaming that, you, me, Perm, everybody, if we were playing that like privately, do you think you would have checked into yourself before? Or do you think because we were live streaming and you were performing that the, the check-in point didn't come until later in your head? Oh, that's interesting. Quite possibly. Uh, I, I think it varies from group to group for me. So when I'm playing with my, uh, my home game, then we we spend a lot more time 
being uh, extrovert about how we feel about our, what our characters are doing at the time. When you're when you are streaming, you or I tend to play with all of that as subtext. And oh, you're hella in character, it. Josh, when you're streaming. You don't break character. I don't think any of us, except maybe maybe Kitsu broke character a few times because she's so funny. But I, you were hella in character the whole time. Yeah, yeah. So that's why yeah. I asked. Yeah, I, I think maybe you're right. I hadn't considered that before. Absolutely. It, um, I probably would have seen that coming before. And yeah, like like Primogen was saying, there's there's the added pressure of being on camera there's the extra consideration for for how you're acting and how you're playing your character yeah, yeah. i decided to play my first time on camera that was really smart of me <laughs> you did a great job though yeah. don't don't even don't even start it mm. apologies um, everyone yeah. for the echo I, I literally have no idea what's going I th on i think I how to fix it is everyone um i don't hear it when josh is no i think it, it might be me are, are you on speaker on speakers yeah i have speakers but i don't, uh, I don't I can throw on some headphones. Hold on. Okay, I think I think that might might be it. Yeah, maybe. we'll we'll see. We'll yeah. see. Yeah, shall see. But um, get all my I, little I, dinky earbuds here. <laughs> I think um, session zero. Um, like speaking for speaking as someone who's been role playing since ninety four. Ah, when I was two. Yeah, but <laughs> like not seriously role playing. But I've been seriously role playing since ninety. Seven ninety-eight. Back then, there was nothing like session zero. Um, there was nothing about cons consent. There were no like I was LARPing fairly early in the twenty-first century, in, in the zero zeros, whatever you want to call it. Nothing, no, no talk before the LARP, or vampire LARP, anything. So I think this is a very jarring change. Like it hasn't, in some circles, it has been progressing uh, slowly or steadily, but in others, it's been completely insular. And I think that might also be a reason for a lot of people's reaction is that I think online role playing in the sense that how we're do how we're talking now with communication over voice and camera stuff like that with people we don't know is much newer um, to a lot of people and mm. it's exploded in the last couple of years with critical role uh, inspiring a lot of people to take their campaign online and seeking friends to play with online. So it's just been a huge change, a very fast change, and a lot of people are probably not super comfortable with that. Um, another thing I sort of explored um, in a thread I posted on Twitter was how the backlash to safety standards, well, not even standards, just using safety techniques, uh, comes in a lot of ways, I think, from geek social fallacies, if you're familiar with them. Um, have, I'm not. I have a vague understanding. Uh, so if you look up geek social fallacies, there is a list of about five of them. And let me let me pull it up on my end here. Let's, let's go grab these. Um, so it's on plausiblydeniable.com. Uh, the five geek social fallacies are ostracizers are evil. Friends accept me as I am. Those, yeah. Yeah, friendship before all, friendship is transitive, and friends do everything together. And something I explore in the thread that I wrote is how 
this this takes a little bit of backstory, and I apologize, because there was, in a bunch of the cult groups I was in, there was a huge backlash to consent in gaming, specifically, because people were like, Shanna Germain hasn't ever played cult, she's coming to take away my game, and it's like, this wasn't written for cult, this was written to be a general gaming resource, but, oh, okay, um... And I asked him what he was concerned about, and he showed me a document he'd written, which was his his version of safety rules, which was talking about, you know, oh, if you want to use haunted castles and piles of dead babies in your game. And I'm like, wait, is that what you think people are trying to take away from you? And he's like, yeah, they're taking away all my spooky stuff. And that baffled me. I was, I was so, I was flabbergasted. I was like, w I don't want to take away your spooky castles. I love spooky castles. What? <laughs> but yeah, I yeah. It had to be. It had to be explained to him that the thing things we were talking about was stuff like I don't know, stalking, child abuse, sexual assault. Yeah, emotional manipulation. Uh, yeah, but that was as real. That was as real to him. And it took a while to get this through. That was as real to him as a haunted castle because he'd never experienced any of that to the best of his knowledge. And like, oh, this, these aren't, you know, things that happen to people. These are just things we tell stories about. And I sort of went and looked at the geek social fallacies and using safety rules specifically goes against geek social fallacy number two which is friends accept me as i am telling someone no you can't do that even if it's like no you can't play a rapist no you can't have this character be raped in a game is saying that they're not allowed to do something which means that your friend doesn't accept you oh my god yeah yeah this is uh, and it's yeah. it's just this, it's just this whole constructed idea that if somebody tells you no in your game, they're not your friend because a friend would allow you creative freedom. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure friends aren't supposed to blow smoke up your ass when you're being right, exactly. a terrible person. Yeah, yeah. And it it was just. It was wild to me, and I also went through sort of, like, I'm sure you all have seen the, the like, DM is God memes, you know, the DM's trying to make me cry, sort of, that sort of yeah. zeitgeist around gaming. It's this idea that if you tell the DM no, you're ruining the game because the DM is the game. I think I think a lot of these uh, a lot of these have their origin in the fact that uh, for a long long time uh, role playing groups especially have been role playing have been pretty fringe in nerd culture mm -hmm. up until yep. very recently uh, it has been a very insular thing activity that you do in a set group of people like I yep. myself come from a very small very tightly knit group that has seen much drama very similar to this like we've had so many fallouts there's been people that nobody talks to anymore uh there's been like shaping of little uh, factions in the group like all this kind of stuff because uh sorry i kept moving around here um all this kind of stuff because there was never really a clear idea of 
what were the rules like there was always this kind of pecking order um and also i think the idea that the gm is god comes a lot from the fact that nobody ever wanted to gm in the past um so the person who did that obviously was doing this great sacrifice for the players and should be appeased um because otherwise someone else should be running the story because I put all this time into that. And I, th- I think this is a very toxic mentality uh, that, right. that came up. But my se- a lot of my self-esteem issues when it comes to storytelling and running a game that I, I, I get almost anxiety attacks before running games on stream is be- because of this humongous pressure, which I think comes from this group. Yep. That everything is up to me to present a great story that everyone else can enjoy. Yeah, yeah. no, I absolutely agree. And I want to take this a little bit back to the session zero discussion we were having. Um, It's actually frightening and infuriating to me how many of my friends are like, I'm going to GM my first campaign. Do you have any suggestions on how to GM? What skills should I learn? Like, are you going to have fun? Like, have you asked your players what they want? And more often than not, what they say is, oh, no, but I watched a bunch of sessions of Critical Role in the Adventure Zone, and I want to I be like Matt Mercer. And I'm like, Matt Mercer, honey, is a paid voice actor who has Hasbro money, which is great and good for him. Like, get that hustle, my dude. But I... This we're seeing sort of a revitalization of this unreasonable standard that you have to be this, you know, great performer and you have to predict everything that your players want without asking. And the GM is just another player, my guys. Like, this might sound like heresy, but the GM, just another player. The GM is allowed allowed to have as many boundaries and as many things they don't want to engage with as the players are. And this is something I see left out of safety discussions a lot. This idea that the GM is allowed to say no to their players. Um, I, in fact, included it um, for Kith and Kin, which is the next Changeling book that's coming out. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Sorry. I have a section on saying yes, saying no, and saying anything. And one of the things I make sure to include is, yes, the storyteller is also a player. And something like I do, I run a Bluebeard's Bride game every Friday night for my Discord um, because I really enjoy running Bluebeard's Bride. It's it's one of the games that is actually more cathartic for me to GM than it is for me to play. Um, But one of the things I always do is in the beginning, I will say, okay, we're gonna do a list of hard limits. Here is my hard limit. I am not going to engage with any tryptophobic imagery at all. I'm not going to describe it. I am not going to engage with it if you try to bring it up. I, as the GM, am not engaging with tryptophobic imagery. And I think that really puts people in the headspace to be like, here are things I actually don't want. Because if you're setting that example as sort of the lead player at your table, even, you know, because the GM does have a different amount of power than other players. If you're setting that example, it allows your players to also do that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, And in a game like like Vampire, for example, um, it's, there are so many different ways to take the story. 
mm-hmm. like like uh, personal horror. Like I, I know uh, a lot of times, a lot of vampire games I've been in, I've always started very strong with personal horror, but then have almost always gradually shifted more to the political power play between factions. And I think I think V five uh, is very good at keeping it focused on the player characters yeah. much more than the previous system like it's a systematic thing that they made it with the predator type and the and the touchstones stuff like that which touchstones i think they picked up from uh, from chronicles of darkness correct yes which is actually one of my favorite additions to the game yeah. and it's one of my favorite additions to chronicles of darkness that in conditions but i can get into conditions in a little bit yeah but um, let's let's talk a little bit about like the kind of pitfalls you'd encounter in a in a vampire game, like uh, normal situations that could arise. Like for example, if if we take uh, Huddy's character, uh, we can I, I suppose we can kind of show the whole uh, book now for for Marie. Um, like why was she going to this bar and chasing these particular men and hunting them? Uh, would you care to 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 tell us a little bit about that? Well, sure. Um, she was uh, specifically targeting these particular men uh, who, I guess, what, I don't remember what you called them. I want to say the patriarchs. Oh, the patriarchs, right, yeah. Well, okay. Um, and they ran this this cult church thing, and she specifically, they were like, <laughs> her herd, but not really. She specifically fed just on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, what else did you want to ask me? <laughs> yeah, just like uh, the um, the way that you approached them, like you've been you've been hunting them, stalking them, and uh, feeding on them. Right, uh, very 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 business like. Just get in, get out, and you know. Yeah. Knowing like that a- the kiss gives pleasure, make it at least pleasurable as possible. Yeah. And then leave was sort and, of the idea. Yeah, and I mean, she was doing this to kind of enact some sort of revenge or like mm-hmm. feed from the people who had been feeding from her symbolically. Sim- exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. So, so that kind of behavior, which we didn't really explain in the group, I can imagine, Josh, uh, you were probably wondering, like, why these guys? I, of course, I painted them up to be douchey. Like, I didn't want them to be nice people. But even so, like, this kind of behavior from a vampire to target this specific group of people, and she kind of violated herself on one of the guys. Uh, well, in, in the sense that she just forced herself and drank his blood uh, mm-hmm. on him. Th- this uh, was perfectly natural to Marie, but, like, without the context, it's like... All right. Yeah. yeah, I was. That's why when we did the post mortem after it, I yeah. was very worried that at some point, and I was prepared for it, that somebody was going to say to me, "Why is Marie doing this? Because it's making yeah. me uncomfortable." But nobody ever said anything, so I don't know. No, yeah. I, I was certainly wondering why is Marie doing this. It never made me uncomfortable, but uh, yeah, it was certainly an aspect of her story that uh, was left with a few question marks over it. Yeah, I know but we never was, touched was, on it. Yeah. No, and that's unfortunately we only played four sessions, so there was very little time for 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 character development, unfortunately. Hmm. Uh, but look, just the same with uh, with your your character, Josh uh, Sebastian, that he had this difficult relationship with both his sire and like the entire bloodline that he was part hmm. of. Um, and again, like, uh, how how do you feel like that affected the way you were playing? Uh. uh... Well, I I feel like a lot of people play and create the characters with an either just straight 
asshole for a sire or uh, a, even an abusive sire um, is very common because of that um, they kill you and then they they turn you into a monster uh, is it seems a, a very common place to go for for characters so it's funny that you mentioned that because the way my husband and i sort of realized we were going to get into a relationship as i was playing his ghoul in a larp and he accidentally sired me <laughs> oops <laughs> and wow hmm. i mean we've been together for almost nine years now so but mm -hmm. Oh, it worked out. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a nice contrast to the usual sire-child yeah. relationship. Well, some, sometimes it's it's love-based. Sometimes. Yeah. On occasion. More, it's supposed <laughs> to be anyway, but or lust-based, whatever you yeah. want to call it. Yeah. Totally that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I actually I really enjoy having healthy sire relationships in Vampire, which is kind of interesting. Mm. Yeah. Um, in the most recent LARP I was in, I my sire was actually my grandfather. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Because, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he was a Bruja, and my character was known to be his granddaughter because um, he had been embraced after he had actual mortal children. Um and so his family were well known in the area by other vampires and a ventru was trying to get back at him and hit my character with a car hmm. so she was embraced to save her life hmm. yeah i um in the the game that's actually starting right after i finished this podcast sunkist <laughs> my my bruja character has or had a sire who was um, someone that basically uh, uh, pulled him out of a, a really, really dark time in his, his life and showed him uh, stories and religion and like, gave him safe shelter. And it was actually a re just a genuinely nice person. Oh, <laughs> that's really nice. Yeah. And he, uh, his job uh, was to look after everyone else's uh, vampire kids basically he Aww. was vampire daycare um, I love that and, yeah. and my, then... hus my husband is actually playing that in the LARP uh, that's running in my area now he's the Toreador Primogen and he hangs out with all of the babies and like just makes them into his info dumps because <laughs> <laughs> people oh, are just funny. like oh the Toreador Primogen is really nice and he'll just watch my kids yeah <laughs> But it's like, yeah, even if you look at the the lore, like there's all kinds of things like you have Ventru families or bloodlines who yep. are like looking out for each other and you have Bruja broods, um, like a lot of North American Bruja all come from the same sire who started their own family um, yep. because they were so split up at the time. Um, I think... A, I, I think a, a reason that a lot of people go for the sire is about asshole kind of trope is because it also helps bring the players together in the sense that they don't have anyone but their, themselves to rely on. Mm. But in the long term, that's obviously going to be a, a complex situation. Um, and I think I think that um, I think the vampire is so layered in in what kind of enemies you can have in it like you can you can go with the obvious violent enemies like werewolves and hunters or you can go with the this political system with uh, the camarilla and the, and your elders and the sires or you can go with uh, the military kind of enemy the the sabbats um 
and and this it's it's easy to start out small with the sire and then work your way up but it is interesting like i've been watching um la by night and you see this relationship for example that nelly g had with um isaac uh, Isaac, I, I, no, no, Isaac, Isaac Abrams. Yeah, sorry, uh, he's not her sire, obviously, but he's kind of taken on the role of a of, yeah. of, uh, of a Malwa, as it's called now, right? Yes, yeah. mentor mm-hmm. Malwa. It's very good. Yeah, yeah, and that kind of relationship, you 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 go like, oh yes, they're also people. <laughs> like they're yes. they're not just monsters. They're they're actually yeah, people. That's yeah. something people forget a lot, I think, when they're playing vampire, is this idea that these, you don't, your memories of your life aren't erased when you become a vampire. Yeah. Like, you still remember what it feels like to love and to care for people and to be excited about things and to be interested, even in stuff like fashion. Like, my. going back to the LARP I was talking about, um, my character who was actually secretly a very devout Bahari, um, her whole way of annoying all the vampires around her and thus causing low-level amounts of pain and harm at all times was to talk like a valley girl in Elysium (laughs) the whole time. That is painful. People really hated it, but also she got promoted to Keeper because she was the only person who would stay in Elysium and cater Elysium and make sure there was entertainment. Because, you know, she was plugged into the social scene and, like, she really cared about everyone around her and she was also an Ansia and people kept treating her like she was a neonate. And, yeah. Brilliant. Um, So... That's something that actually gets me a lot with Bahari is that people are like, oh, they're murderous serial killers who torture you for no reason. And like, no, pain is a gift. You're thinking of Rachel Dolium. Okay, Rachel Dolium's a terrible Bahari. She was deliberately written to be a terrible Bahari. Um, and I, I'm so sad because I wrote on Cults of the Blood Gods and it was one of my favorite books to write on and unfortunately uh, I had this one letter in the book about from a Bahari saying that Rachel Dolium is a terrible role model and just like ripping on the entire revelations of the Dark Mother <laughs> and it got taken out because it was a li- it was a little too much inside baseball but it was probably one of the funniest things I've ever written to me anyway yeah like... That's got to be a huge challenge for you guys because you're you're uh, a lot of concepts earlier concepts from from uh, Vampire the Masquerade uh, have very problematic uh, bases. Like I'm reading a bunch of the even revised edition clan books yeah. are like, Ugh, there's some stuff that's pretty icky to deal with and, and oh yeah, obviously a product of its time. Um, but like the Bahari and and in a sense Church of Cain, like all these things, like trying to give them new dimension, new depth, and still trying to keep this touch of yeah. humanity and even to a greater extent the paths and the sabbat like yeah. they were humans once so what is i was yeah oh, sorry yeah no go ahead i was i was really really happy with um because jacob burgess was one of the people working on uh, the bahari and that was awesome mm-hmm. um but something i'm really excited about with the bahari um is that a lot of people 
don't realize, and I hope they will after Cults of the Blood Gods, because our team who were writing the Bahari were awesome, um, is that uh, the followers of Lilith are people like me who have dealt with a lot of trauma and find a certain amount of pain or a certain type of pain super cathartic. And yeah. it's a gift. The idea behind the Bahari is that pain and the revelation that comes with pain and the relief that comes with pain is a gift. And it is an incredibly problematic concept because Yes, it's an extremely unhealthy way of dealing with trauma, especially if you're taking it to the religious extreme. But then you need to be able to talk about that because that is actually something that happens in the real world and you need to be able to connect it, like you said, to that touch of humanity. Yeah. That's, again, where you bring in those safety rules because then you're not playing your Bahari as please hot evil lady step on me all the time. You're not playing your Malkavians as fish milks. You're not playing, you know, your, I don't know, your Shimizu as weird non-consensual body modders who will just tear you apart given the slightest provocation. Like you are able to pull in these very deep and difficult concepts and talk to people and be like, hey, here's how I want to play this out. Here's what I want this to mean within the context of the story. Yeah. Hmm. Um, I think a game, I, I'm going to go back to another game that I really like, um, Bluebeard's Bride again. And I think Bluebeard's Bride does an amazing job with this because the game is... Uh, they never come out and say in those words, this game is about the patriarchy, but it's very, very obvious that this game is about the patriarchy because yeah. the rule book always calls the player dear girl or dear child. And in the game master section, it's these are the four themes the game is hitting, which are religion, body, sexuality, and motherhood. And if you can find a more patriarchal list of themes, you let me know. <laughs> But the game is about exploring the pain and the trauma. And yes, even sometimes the beauty of being a woman under patriarchy. Because the problem is, being a woman under patriarchy gives a certain amount of benefits as well as an incredible amount of detriment. Like, I can scream for help and a dude will show up. But then, like, in the game, when you scream for help and a dude shows up, that dude's going to want something from you in exchange for helping you out. So it is it is a wonderful exploration of the complexity and the horror of being a woman under patriarchy. Another game that does something like this really well is um, Red Markets. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Red Markets. Never heard of it. Nope. Red Markets is amazing. Um, it is a zombie apocalypse tabletop where the real enemy is capitalism. Yeah. And the areas that are still overrun by zombies are called the recession. Sorry, the loss. And the areas that are safe are called the recession. <laughs> and everything is named after various economic concepts mm. so the GM is called the market and something they say in the beginning is 
this is a poverty simulator, but we added zombies so that it's not just tempting you to be like, we're poor and this sucks. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's pretty pretty blunt with the uh, with the symbolism. Like it's on the nose. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but no, being being open, being transparent about your themes, that's something that V5 did that I love. That's something that I got to help V5 do. And you don't have to be obtuse about your themes, especially if you're a horror game. Being like upfront and like, these are the things I want to cover. These are the things that I want this to mean. Oh, there, there seems to be this idea that saying that is somehow inelegant or gauche. And it's not it is it isn't elegant if you're being a douche about it <laughs> but like if you're just going hey these are the themes that we want to cover in this game then that's great because it gives you somewhere to start from i i am 100 with you on that because in my experience the games where i have had the most fun and gotten the most into it and like gone real deep on uh our characters uh, pain, happiness, um, interactions with others is when um, out of character everyone is like this is what my character is about this is what he, she, yeah. they is going to do uh, and this is probably what should happen to them when they when, when they do something fucked up like um, I played Monster Hearts um, with game. Roll For It a couple of times now and we're all like, okay, let's make the worst, most troubling decisions for our characters and their sexualities as we possibly can. And uh, like, every everyone's cool to just say uh, no whenever, but like, because we've established so much through uh, like chatting about where our characters are coming from and going to. Uh, everyone can then play on those themes in character and then uh, just like start to yeah. hit the themes harder and more competently. So uh, like sometimes it's fun when there are secrets about your character that you hide from the other players like uh, no, no, actually everyone knew that one so that's a bad example. Once my my character was secretly a demon and no, none of the audience knew but that lasted like eight episodes but all of the other players knew it and they played into that like huh, this keeps on disappearing and like <laughs> stuff sets on fire when he's around, that's weird. But like like I say, it's, it's another example of people yeah. get into it and then can play off of those things uh, as, you're, as you're getting into it. Yeah. Uh, uh, more and more into it, uh, and, and I, I think that um, the role playing, um, like something I encountered as soon as I started role playing online, was that like in Sweden, Dungeons and Dragons was never a prevalent theme. We we have a lot of our own role playing games, and we have a huge LARP scene where emphasis has always been more on the role playing rather than the rolling of the dice. Um, oh, oh, are we going to get into a fight about the false dichotomy of American and Swedish games? Because you know, I'm ready. I'm not going to get I'm into a ready. fight about that. Um, <laughs> but I did, I did encounter a lot of issues playing with people online because optimization uh, and the goal of winning a game uh, is, is a very prevalent idea, at least with the people I played with. I'm not mm -hmm. saying necessarily Dungeons Sorry. and Dragons is selling it as that concept, but I, uh, when you introduce the, the word game into something, it immediately conveys the idea that it, there is a winning goal, and usually you win by beating the bad guys. That's how games win. 
are one. And uh, I, I think, like like what Josh was talking about, Monster Heart is that uh, it's perfectly fine to fail. Like failing, you're having your character fail with something, and and rolling with that uh, can be equally rewarding or even more rewarding uh, in the matter. And I think uh, I was much more comfortable with this idea. Um, uh, because I also grew up playing a lot like whenever we wanted to have the chance of failure we would roll dice but otherwise be like yeah you can do that or you can't do that because it makes sense for your character because the point isn't to beat the dungeon master in a, a perception check to see if I notice the one thing that will fix this adventure the point is uh, can I persuade this guard that I'm actually here to give these people what they want or am I going to have to run and work from that uh, and God, I'm really making a ball, a yarn ball here. But um, what I was trying to say is that I think uh, pe people, myself included, sometimes are very scared of being vulnerable in a game of imagination because yeah. it's the one situation you're supposed to be in control because it's your escape from reality. It's your uh, little little castle. But like you were saying, uh, Ruffle Jacks, um, uh, another way of being, uh, another way of escaping reality is also being in a cathartic situation where you can deal with your traumas in a safe and controlled environment. And these are, are really slamming against each other right now in the role-playing community, and I love it, but it's also very provoking for a lot of people. Mm. Yeah. And I uh, just want to hit on one thing you said, which is that failure I'm so is super sorry important. I'm sorry, got. I'm sorry. Your chat. Your chat is doing your. Your chat is doing things. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's, that's fine. That's that'll be Leo, my mod. He's silly. Uh, yeah. So um, failure is. Uh, uh for me when i'm uh storytelling or when i'm a player in vampire specifically failure is where often the personal horror comes out like you try and do a blood ritual to summon a demon or off the top of my head and you fail and that is where the demon is, gets the advantage and then from there something horrible happens to you it's where the the bestial failures and i i don't know what you were going to say about compulsions but v5 is the first place that i've experienced something like that and giving your players a prompt like often my players are like i feel like i'm paranoid right now and then i show them the compulsion section and i'm like how about this and they're like yes please so often <laughs> often i don't give them out the players are asking for them it's it's a weird weird change but um yeah, the, the failure and the bestial failures and I guess the, the messy criticals are where the horror appears and success, while interesting, is less horrifying unless you yourself are inflicting something on another NPC or character. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But uh, I don't know how everyone else feels about that, I guess success can be horrifying i don't know i, I was gonna say uh, sorry i guess it pertains to what you said but prim saying that you know um playing the game is supposed to be like a controlled and environment or a controlled and safe environment i certainly feel like safe playing with you guys when i played with you guys but um 
this might be a really weird take because this is a personal thing, but um, I spend most of my day controlling everything that I possibly can because of the issues that I have. You know, I control, I have alarm, I have like a hundred alarms on my phone. I, I control my whole day, every day, yeah. all day. Yeah. So when I played Vampire, when I played with you guys, that was a point where I didn't have to be in control, where something else was in control and I could just react off of things and I knew that there was no control coming from me and it was very freeing. And I don't know if that's a weird take or not, so you can tell me if that's strange. <laughs> Nope. I think it's very it's a very healthy. Uh, Is it great? Yeah. yeah. It, it, I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about um, sort of this idea of you know being able to have that catharsis, being able to feel that horror and the, uh, the horror of not being in control in a fictional situation, and knowing that it's not going to affect it's probably not going to affect anything beyond that situation. So no, I totally get you. I mean, it's it's the same. Sorry to bring this back to kink, but it's my favorite metaphor for this. It's the same impulse that leads people to bottom in scenes, right? <clears throat> it's this idea that you are giving up control, like, in a set way for a set period of time. Yeah. In a safe way. I'm sorry, yeah. my dog. Hello, dog. We feed crows out our window, and sometimes they land on the windowsill when it's not feeding time, and then he barks at them. Oh. It's um, like in my old role playing group, um, I believe our storyteller had an approach that was essentially uh, game through strife or through trial. Like we were mm -hmm. constantly bombarded with these uh, with these issues, these confrontations, these uh, difficulties. And um, that's certainly one way of playing it. But eventually it reached a point where I felt that I was completely powerless, like in character and out of character to influence where the game was going because regardless of what my character tried to do uh he, he was met with uh sometimes an almost unreasonable resistance from the world around him mm -hmm. so, so it is an it, it is a precarious balance but i i do personally agree also as well that it is relaxing as a player to just be like, I'll react to whatever happens. That's the full extent, and I'll, I'll yes and with the players and the GM. Uh, whereas the GM is like, uh, th that's why I get the shakes when I'm supposed to GM because it's so much more pressure I feel on on me to to present that situation. That's reasonable. You're so good at it, Prim. You don't even know. <laughs> you're really you're so good at it. Stop. <laughs> I really love never. <laughs> Here's you want to have a little GM hint. You want my Always. favorite GM hint? Yeah, sure. Always. Is when uh, they open a door and they see something horrifying or whatever. Ask them what they see that causes their character to have a reaction. So, like, if they open a door, like, what causes your character to take a step back about this room? Yeah. Or That's a good, why does your good yeah. Advice. Like, yeah. let them tell you what's going on sometimes. Totally. It works no, out real well. And yeah. uh, uh, Kaylee Evil in chat just said uh, the only thing they don't like is losing control of your character's reactions and feelings. Yep. I, I have had that DM who's like, this is what you do. I'm like, unless it's an epic critical win of me chopping off an orc's head, you can describe that, that's fine. But telling someone how their character feels is exactly yeah. the opposite of that yeah that's a, a great gm tip that i uh, 
Yeah, yeah I don't know how time. I would feel about that if Prim told me what Marie was feeling all the time. <laughs> that is why yeah. uh, that is why presence is such a horrible discipline. I love right. presence. <laughs> it is it is exactly that. It tells others how they're supposed to be feeling. Like awe and daunt are by their very essence like you're you're forcing people to to pay attention to you and to experience feel things about you and I Gosh, it's almost like it's codifying an uh, emotional yeah. manipulation. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, I also uh, feel that having played now a character who has animalism, it's a little bit similar, except with emotional manipulation of anger, Sp yeah. um, especially the one where you can just turn off someone's responses, like oh, I love make them in Quell, that's it, yeah. Make them into a sitting duck. It's Yep. That would be a really scary situation to be in. Just yep. asserting dominance is yep. Yeah. And uh Yeah. It, I just I'm oh, sorry. I just remembered something I wanted to bring up that I totally forgot because <laughs> we, we moved on. Speaking again about Prim and GMing and then Ruffle Jacks, you said something about Matthew Mercer. Um, do you guys think I think we touched on this in the actual plays podcast, but do you guys think that with um how popular LA by night and critical role is and stuff that that's going to intimidate more people from trying to be storytellers or, or DMs or whatever? Oh uh, yeah. too say... low the question. I don't know. I don't think. I think some people might not be intimidated, but there will be, and have been, a lot of people who are like, "How can I be like Matt Mercer? How can I be yeah. like Jason Carl? How can I emulate that experience?" Which I saw someone call Jason Carl the hardest working man in gaming, and I felt me and a bunch of other freelancers go really. <laughs> I love him, by the way, to be clear. I love Jason. He's, He's amazing. He's wonderful. But it, it was, it, it's very, that celebrity effect is very weird. Mm -hmm. Because, like, people associate Matt Mercer with D&D &D now, more so than people who have actually written for D&D &D for years. Uh, people associate Jason Carl with Vampire more so than... Honestly, sometimes more so than like Justin Achille or um, Mark Reinhagen or any of the other people or Rich Thomas is another big one. Like um, it's, it's just very interesting seeing how the perception of who has control over what game line changes uh, depending on who's streaming what. Yeah, I think um, I think. Uh, a lot of people don't uh, think about how long Matthew Mercer and his crew were playing together before they even started yeah. streaming. They were doing it for two years. Um, and personally, this is really not to, to throw any, any shade on season one of Critical Role. It's obviously loved by a lot of people. I'm not a huge fan uh, of, of it. I've only listened to the first 20 episodes. I know it probably gets better after that. But I immediately <laughs> fell in love with I, I know. I immediately fell in love with season two. And I think that because I felt that those characters felt more grounded because they were also not like level 10 right away when they started. Same. Mm -hmm. And they had time to develop and grow their relationships organically in the show. Whereas they already were very familiar with each other when they started. Yeah. But I and, think, sorry, bringing yeah, sorry. you back yeah. to the, the the main topic, 
yeah. they have the experience with each, with each other and yeah. they mm-hmm. i have no idea how they organize this and what tools they use behind the scenes yeah. but will have an understanding of where to go with each other's characters and yeah. relationships and uh and like situations yeah absolutely and you can i'm willing to bet money that uh matthew mercer sits down with his players if there's been an emotionally intensive scene they sit down and talk about it afterwards yep um because he knows his players too uh, and this is not something you can artificially create in a group but there's ways to help that with the uh with the whole consent sheet and stuff like that yeah but and after care, I, yeah. I am i don't think everyone just goes home clocks out and they're done for a whole week and then they go back again together agree yeah uh and i think that's so important because they've built this relationship with each other and um it's um it's it's difficult to compare yourself to them i i personally uh, like to watch them because i want to look at how to improve my own way of storytelling uh but i think a lot of people have expectations that are unrealistic both yeah. at, on themselves and on the other players and yeah, i wanted to bring up what yeah. daddy sheepdo said who is hilarious yeah. tell him to yeah. stop being so funny josh <laughs> that he said um that people should take matt and jason as inspiration as opposed oh, yeah. to trying to yes. absolutely very much it's it's like going it's like watching something by francis ford Coppola and being like oh if i'm not if i'm making movies and it's not on this level why am i even trying yeah. it's like there's degrees to yeah, it. And, also, and, yeah. yeah sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say there's also the fact that it doesn't necessarily have to be good as long as you're having fun like mm-hmm. it's a game uh it, it will certainly yeah. be better if you're all having fun doing it so yeah I, no it's okay um it's interesting that you said it doesn't necessarily have to be good at the game because uh it sort of insinuates that matthew mercer and jason yeah. carl are the standard of good and like they are excellent performers, but they are not just performing for their table, they're performing for an audience who are not their players. And I think people don't really consider that when they're like, oh, I want my GM to be like Matt Mercer, or oh, I want a GM just like Jason Carl, is that is a very different style of GMing than yeah. just GMing for a table. And like everybody will have their own style of GMing. That's just a fact. You can be an amazing GM and you're not going to be someone, you're not going to be someone's cup of tea. It's kind of like dating actually. And I'm sorry, I keep relating stuff back to romance and sex stuff, but it's really Perfectly easy fine. to do. Perfectly fine. It's about human interaction. Yeah. Thing, really. <laughs> but you can be the best GM ever. You can be Matt Mercer reincarnated, even though he's still alive and you're still not going to be someone's cup of tea. And that's exactly. fine. Yeah. It's not an indictment. It's not an indictment of you. What is an indictment of you is if you decide that your story is more important than your players. Mm. Yeah. Um, when I started working on my Changeling the Lost uh, game, I sat down, I isolated myself for several weeks and created this little small town of Lillebrook, and 95% of the content has now been used in stream. Mm-hmm. It's fine. It's, uh, but I immediately realized just one or two sessions into the game that uh, I would not be able to take it to the places that I wanted to take it with Changeling because we didn't have this uh closeness with each other we've done session zero with with fill out the consent forms but i was like okay this is going to be streamed live 
um, I had to take that in consideration. There's six players, I had to take that in consideration. And there's going to be moments when we go like, oh shit, I didn't know I was not into this, like yep. in the middle of the game. So I deliberately toned down some stuff because I, I really want to play Changeling. Like I love the work you folks have done with the game. I think it's emotionally very close to my heart, but I don't think I could do that aspect of it justice in a stream because it feels less intimate on a stream. And I'm worried that it would just go very bad if I went, you know, ham on the whole Changeling, uh, on, yeah. on all the horrible emotional abuse of that game. So, fun fact, I, Changeling the Lost First Edition saved my life, like in a very literal sense, caused me to realize that I had been abused for several years and needed to get therapy and that I was allowed to call it abuse. I have never played in a game of Changeling the Lost where I felt the GM got it, which is really interesting to me. I'm sure your game is wonderful. I haven't seen it yet, but part of the reason I wrote part of the reason I wrote the kits and the tokens and the storytelling advice like I did is because every time I've ever seen somebody run a game of first edition Changeling the Lost, it has either been let me play out my non-consensual sex fantasies on your character. Or, let's all go be pixie superheroes. And something I really wanted to push is, no, this is a game about being traumatized. And when a lot of people hear that, what they think is, oh, it's it's suffering porn the game. And it's not. And that's something I'm so proud of with Changing the Lost 2nd Edition, is it very much covers this idea that being traumatized has all of this, you know, terror and horror in it, but it also has so much beauty and wonder to it. There's just, like, me as someone with CPTSD, I think about things in way different ways than someone with without CPTSD might not, and, like, back me up on this, honey, because <laughs> you, you seem to be, like, really... Um... I don't know enough about Changeling. I've watched mm -hmm. maybe the first 10 episodes of um, Prim's game. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember when in the beginning they all sort of did their background stories where they all talked about, you know, uh, what was done to them, you know, why they look the way that they look. And then, of course, there's like the slow realization that some of them are related and some of them know each other, involved, you know. Mm -hmm. So you can tell that it's a story of abuse in the subtext anyway, at least as far as I got into it. Yeah, and I, I have PTSD and I have um, borderline personality disorder and I have oh, yeah, OCD and I have a bunch of other really fun things in my myriad of mental illnesses. Um, but, you we know- can list someday. Yeah, sure, totally. <laughs> I don't I don't ever, that's the thing is I never talk about my mental illnesses. I never talk about it with anybody. I never talk about my background with anybody. Prim was the first person outside of my wife that I ever talked to anybody about. Um, so I'm trying to be better and trying to talk about it because normally I just keep it all inside where I can, you know, continue fostering my mental illnesses. <laughs> uh, but I don't know if I could ever play Changeling 
um, for that exact reason. And I don't know if I could play, what was it, Blue Bre- Bluebeard's Bride? Bride. Mm-hmm. The patriarchy thing, when you brought that up, I mean, immediately I was like, I don't think I could ever actually sit there and play that. If Vampire was a game, which not saying that there isn't patriarchy themes to it, but there. if that was a game that was strictly about patriarchy, that if it didn't involve a lot of... Um, you know, the fact that, you know, your generation, your bloodline and so on, th- yeah. different factors that don't pertain to necessarily your gender. I don't know if I could play it. That's because, reasonable. Yeah, because I literally grew up under the thumb of patriarchy yeah. for 20 oh. years in a, in, a, in a cultish Christian church where I was a woman and I was forced yep. to do a whole bunch of horrible things. So yeah, no, I, I don't know if I could play it, to be honest. I grew up Catholic and homeschooled, so I get you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but no, Bluebeard's Bride is very much sort of a magical realism game, which is, which I think really helps me deal with sort of the trauma because something that I think people forget a lot when dealing with traumatized people is we have this sort of magical realism living in our heads, right? Like so many of us are poets or writers or content creators because it's in a lot of ways easier to process shit through fiction and magical realism and fantasy and sci-fi. And if you're going to write about traumatized people, you have to write about that magic that comes with it. And I think that gets left out so much. Um, This is why I was very interested in having this podcast today, because I don't think I'm, because when we were discussing in Discord, you know, we are all of us shooting the shit in Discord, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, the way you talk about it, you know, how you write your trauma into things and how you use it as a tool, as opposed to something that's a hindrance. I don't think I'm quite there yet with myself personally. So that's why I was like, really, that's why I didn't talk a lot in the beginning. And I'm really interested in learning a lot because I'm not quite there yet. I don't have quite that perspective yet. Uh, it takes time. I am. <laughs> yeah. I, to be fair, I've been in a deep and committed relationship with my therapist since uh, 2014. And she's wonderful. She is a trauma and grief focused therapist who is a Unitarian Universalist and swears whenever I bring up my ther- my family in therapy. And is like this older grand, this older hippie grandmother type who is just so wonderful. Um, and something we talk about a lot is finding joy in in sort of integrating that trauma. And it's weird because when you say that, people think, oh, you have to. It's all about positivity, and you have to like think positive and heal. And like, no, that's that's not what it's talking about because. Like, I find a lot of joy in ritual, for example. I'm a lapsed Catholic, so I don't go to Mass anymore a lot, but I find a lot of joy and comfort in uh, confession, for example, because it is a place where you're telling someone what you believe your sins are, and then they give you something concrete to do that will absolve you of the sins. And since I'm so used to gaslighting and emotional manipulation, having someone go, okay, you did these things and here are the things you need to do to be absolved of them. is so comforting. (laughs) Um, And that is a form of magic, right? This idea that if you can find things that cause you to feel that relief, feel that um, absolution, feel that power, 
that's magic. And when you're playing with something like ghouls from Vampire or like Changelings from Changeling the Lost, that magic gets codified into actual visible physical effects upon the world. So you want to know a secret about Changeling the Lost, second edition? Sure, yeah. Totally. So I wrote the kiths. I wrote all 12 kiths. Um, in kith and kin, other people are writing kiths, but I, I set up the 12 kiths in the core book. Each one of those kiths is specifically based on a way of dealing with complex trauma. Yeah, For, uh, because there's a lot of people who probably haven't played Changeling Washington. Can you explain the, the difference, kith and kin? Like what? I would love to. Yeah. So um, whereas in Vampire, your clan is the sort of i don't know your class almost yeah um it's your splat uh you have two splats in changeling the lost two e which are your seeming and your kith and your seeming is sort of like your overall category that you're in and your kith is sort of your subcategory so you could be a fairest, which is a seeming, and they're they're like the pretty, the pretty passive aggressive in charge changelings. They're like the Toreador changelings, basically. Um, and then you might be, I don't know, we'll go for something that would be familiar to vampire fans, a leech finger. And a leech finger is a changeling that can actually absorb people's life force. And they tend to get along pretty well with vampires. So a Ferris leech finger is going to look different than, for example, I don't know, a Darkling leech finger, which is going to look more like a Nosferatu vampire than a Ferris leech finger, which is going to look more like a Toreador vampire. Yeah. Um, so kiths are sort of how you processed your durance, which is the time you were imprisoned in fairy under the fae um and so each kiss is specifically how you react to that trauma and it's a big fairy tale archetype about how you react to that trauma so i came up with two new ones for this game and 10 you would have 10 you would recognize from first edition if you played first edition so for example the bright one deals with trauma by being the brightest prettiest thing in the room yeah. and can actually turn that up to a point where it is harmful so like toxic attention seeking whereas something like the playmate um the playmate can actually sacrifice points of clarity, which are like points of humanity for a vampire, uh, in order to heal people. So, like, altruism is a form of self-harm, mm. which is something that I personally do a lot when I'm in a bad headspace. Um, yeah, trying to f fix everyone else when you're yeah, when not. Exactly. So, mm. just going on through that, but... It's, it's very much this layer of fantasy in between the actual trauma that I have and the trauma that makes it onto the page because 
in a way, I think it's a lot more compelling as a trauma narrative if you have that fantasy, if you have that magic in that game and you're not just being like, my character suffered and is sad all the time. So it's... I, I think people often don't fully uh, uh, expect this response uh, from people with trauma is like they can and do incorporate that into the game. So uh -huh. uh, I was wondering, uh, you said you uh, had in encountered like gaslighting and abuse. So when that comes up in, say, Vampire or Changeling, uh, how would you ask your your fellow players to uh deal with that and like talk about it and what tools would you use to manage that i guess so as we mentioned earlier vampire is in a lot of ways a game about abuse and gaslighting and emotional manipulation and 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 because vampire at its heart is a game about predation and attacking the shape, the very shape of people around you, not just their body or their soul, but the entire shape of their person. Um, I'm gonna make a hard right turn into Exalted real quick and then I'll come back to your question, I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. okay. This yeah, is sure. part of the fun ADHD of talking to me as I'm like, I have a lot of good points, but they go all over the map. <laughs> exactly sorry. what you mean. It's, it's fine, don't worry. Uh, so, in Exalted, in 2nd edition, Graceful Wicked Masks was the Fey book, the uh, Fair Folk book. And one of the things it covers in detail is what's called shaping attacks, which actually sort of transform the very essence of what a being is. And Fey are very, very good at shaping attacks. And that actually gave me a terminology for abuse, which is shaping attacks, because people are like, I don't understand why these abusers do these things. Why are they so mean? You know, why do they do these weird self-defeating things that end in violence, et cetera, et cetera. And the idea is that it's a shaping attack because you are trying to convince someone to be something other than what they are, even if that something is impossible. Yeah. Because you are trying to fit them into a shape that they are not. So I often refer to abuse as shaping attacks. Um, Vampire and Changeling, in a lot of very real ways, like if you if you look at even how Changelings are made, that is a shaping attack in and of itself. Vampire has some very obvious shaping attacks, like, um, I don't remember if Vicissitude is still in 5e, but no, like, yeah, it, no. okay. but in, in Revised and in earlier editions and in 20th, um, Vicissitude is a very obvious shaping attack. Um, but you also have stuff like Presence, Dominance, or Dominate rather, uh, Animalism, etc. And I, <sighs> So this is this is my terrible terrible dark secret. I hope you're ready for it. I'm really burned out on vampire. All right. <laughs> like, Fair enough. My my local not not to not to say anything bad about you guys, but my local my local group has been running vampire LARPs for the past twenty years, uh, even before I was part of it. And I've been writing for vampire for about five years, and I still really enjoy writing for vampire. And I enjoy talking about vampire, but it's it's hard for me to play vampire games because I know that what I am getting into is a game about predation, is a game about social bullying and manipulation. And 
like a lot of times if somebody's like i'm gonna run a vampire game i'd really like you to play in it i my response is thank you but no thank you because i i it is like sometimes i'll take a couple of years of break from it and then i'll be okay again i did that once it was great and then i played in a vampire game for two years and then i was done again but sometimes it's just knowing when to say no honestly um and like i said i haven't played in a changeling game yet where i felt totally comfortable with the gm doing what they were doing because so many people i have played with think it's either sparkly fairy superheroes or non-consensual sex the game but that's, that's and, an interesting point to bring up like how come you haven't like what is it difficult for for them to take in the actual concepts of changeling like why isn't it working um, the way it's supposed to be intended well i i think it is working the way it's supposed to be intended because i've seen a lot of actual plays where people have gotten it and that's important i personally haven't had luck finding a group that i can play with with changeling um and that will take some work on my part this is again not an indictment of changeling itself because i love this game again this game saved my life it was my dream project i love writing for it i love reading it it's a beautiful game but i personally struggle finding groups to play it with um when i play games like changeling or vampire though um and it is a game that involves shaping attacks such as bluebeard's bride uh something i am very clear with my gm about is here are the three words that will set me off ungrateful demented uh what was it ungrateful demented and spoiled i mm. cannot be called any of those in a game i will shut down mm. uh that's just those are my hard limit words i can't do tryptophobic yeah. imagery i can't do those three words oh and i can't be in a game where torture like physical or mental torture is seen as a valid way of extracting information from people like if it works as people think think it works then i can't be in that game all right so like i i have i have struggled a lot to find the sort of self-awareness that causes me to be able to say what i want in a game but it really helps to have safety rules in place at a table because i know my level of self-awareness i don't know the level of self-awareness of everybody else at the table and having a formalized ritualized way of saying hey i need to back out of this or hey i want more of this is very very helpful hmm. yep. welcome back hello sorry about that sorry it's okay. no worries. I was worried I chased you off. No, no, I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I feel like um, uh, Changeling is the, also the kind of game that uh, is very much a slow boil. And I think yes. that by its very nature, any kind of game where you want to play on these uh, aspects, where you want to go into the personal horror, it has to be a slow boil. And like I was talking about earlier, the whole like uh, argument of what is the point of the game, 
I think many storytellers, myself included, are very scared of having a very low intensity session where mm -hmm. not a lot is being done. There's a lot of conversations and discussions. And they incidentally also not don't necessarily make for the best actual place to watch because there's deliberation the between each other. There's moments of pause of thinking which all come very natural in a in a physical game or or a game where there's you know you're just with your friends but in a stream it can easily uh it's not very actiony so to speak yeah it, it can appeal to certain crowd absolutely but i feel like it's paying off now in my campaign we're on episode 22 now and we're having i'm pretty pleased with how it's been going because they've been shuffled around by the local changelings a lot to solve a bunch of problems and they'd mm -hmm. be like oh they're using us to do all this stuff and then it's slowly being unraveled that the local changelings are completely incompetent at dealing with the issue at hand oh. and there are a bunch of different factions all of them have good arguments for their perspective but the players don't know which one they should follow so there's a mm -hmm. lot of intergroup debates because certain characters kitsu my wife uh her character is is very easily to anger uh, elemental they're an elemental character. yep 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 mm -hmm, and then you mm -hmm. have the wise and who just want to you know take it slow don't take everything deal... apart debate yeah, exa it and exactly forever. and then you have yeah. the, the 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 troll uh, not troll uh ogre, ogre. Who, who's very like oh just going along with things and not trying to reflect too much like slowly starting That's to reflect so lovely yeah. <laughs> i love it's, him it's it's a it's a great game but it's taken a long time to get to the point where the players feel comfortable with like all right let's open up and talk about our emotions a bit and right. that's so rewarding so i really like yeah. what you're doing with with, with trying you. to bring this out of a game um and vampire it, it's so easy to be like all right we're all vampires let's go solve crime or whatever um let's go do like, crime yeah, instead of being like oh you were literally killed in passion and then brought back to life and you're not allowed to feel like a human anymore because then you're going to be weak in this jihad that's going on and and especially if you're sabbat you're like oh you if you hold on to your human values you're going to go you're going to become a vassal and you will lose your mind it's like it's it's traumatic extremely traumatic and it's oh, hard yeah. to capitalize on that cap capitalize on it sorry yeah yeah um but i think i think i really hope that v5 is going to ground uh campaigns a whole lot more i think the chicago by night uh book and uh, the adventure that came with it is very good at that oh god yeah the chicago by night book is excellent um yeah. mike uh mike hollywood did an amazing job on yeah. that um, and 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 uh cults of the blood god as well because yeah. blood gods, because it's it's huge huge cults and then very small ones and like yeah very niche ones very like it's 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 covering all aspects of kindred faith which i always yeah. felt was underplayed uh, uh cult of the blood gods is super great um yeah. i actually got to do a series of cult generation tables for it so like if you need yeah. a small local kindred cult you can just oh you did those tables yeah those are great we were talking about thank that you. when we did the when we oh did the thanks yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, um... we had a whole podcast for cults of the blood gods i'm i'm really flattered that you guys like the generation tables because i had a lot of fun with those I, I think i'm gonna use it for uh and this is spoilers for anyone who's watching sunkiss <laughs> so i guess mute me for a sec but i'm probably gonna be using those generation tables 
Uh, hopefully when my character forms his own oh, little, nice, nice. Uh, little group of friends in blood sacrifice. <laughs> hey, I love a group of little friends in blood sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, my we're going to have a great time. Um, yeah, and uh, it's... Uh, it's a really good book, but uh, then yeah. obviously touches on uh, a whole other section of possible ho- horrible situations to uh, oh, to is encounter. Oh, a PDF. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, then yeah, I there's... have to to add it to my my list of things I've done because I try not to add things until they're out. But yeah. Um... But yeah. it's it's interesting too. Like, there's so many different kinds of horror that like horror oh, yeah. seems to be the huge theme now lately, and in, in role playing games in general, horror and sci fi. I guess that would maybe that's just mm-hmm. what I'm perceiving. Um, but uh, I I wanted to to touch back on like like system system choice as well because we we talked a little bit about systems and how systems itself can themselves can can promote uh, the kind of gameplay that you want and i know cult uses a slight variation of power by the apocalypse which in itself is a very collaborative kind of system whereas call of cthulhu at least last time i played it it's been a while has a much more gm base uh, gm base exactly and yeah. they're also extremely different in in the in their approach to horror because mm-hmm. called cthulhu you are literally nothing in the eyes of these ancient beings whereas in cult you have the potential to become something even greater than them yes which completely shifts the the whole theme of the game like there's still the basic puzzle pieces in both of them that are very similar but their approach is so interestingly div- divisive um and I, I think like vampire as well has its very uh, specific range of horrors, but I, I, I'm always worried that people kind of zone in on one system and go like, "How can I hack this?" Yeah, that, and you're like, "There's like four other games that can do this without yes. a huge amount of rewriting." Which is, you can hack a game. That's fine. And that's yeah. No, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. It's funny because I actually got into an argument with a guy on, on uh, Twitter no. a while ago uh, because he's like, well, what if I did a D&D experience system where you got a level for doing random shit like lighting a torch or killing a chicken and, you know, you, you got these steep level up curves and, you know, you're fighting monsters by the end, you know, like you're fighting the drafts by the end of the first session. Is that lit or shit? And I'm like, well, you're kind of destroying the primary gameplay loop of D&D. You're disconnecting the XP system from, you know, you're disconnecting the incentive system from the game itself. I'm not really sure why you're going this route. He's like, well, some people don't play D&D just to kill monsters. Some of us like to roleplay. And I'm like, that's not what I said. Like, I, I don't understand what's up with your XP system. Why are you doing it this way? He's like, well, I want to incentive, you know, uh, some of us use D&D to be creative. Like, do you think I just play D&D as a murder hobo? Because I don't, I rarely play D&D anymore. And he's like, I'm sure I don't know how you play D&D. And I went, okay, we're not, we're not, this is not working. 
And it was very strange because afterwards I'm like, he's using the Minecraft XP system. <laughs> Literally said light a torch and kill a chicken. Like, I don't... Yeah. And, like, it's... We were having what is essentially referred to as a two-bong hit conversation, which is where we're talking so far past each other that it's just not registering. But I, it, it was the oddest conversation I've ever had because... He was asking if his hack of D&D &D was good, and I was like, here's why this is an issue, and he reacted as though I said you can't roleplay in D&D, &D, which you absolutely can roleplay in D&D. &D. There are rules for it. But D&D, &D, the primary gameplay loop of D&D, &D, if you look at what the rules and the XP system incentivize, is, yeah, get yeah. Uh, get mission, optimize party, fight monsters, get treasure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's, 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 that's fun as hell. Yeah, it's great. It's incredibly reasonable. Yeah. It's a good gameplay loop system. It's had over 50 years of revision. Um, it's, you know, it's got the money that it can continue. Okay. It's got the money that it can continue being a, a big system and continue uh, innovating and incentivizing new and interesting different things and paying writers to write that. But saying that D&D's primary loop, uh, loop isn't fight monsters, get treasure, fundamentally misunderstands the core of D&D. Hmm. Now, if you're playing something like Birthright or Planescape, you're actually going to get interesting modifications to the primary core loop because Birthright is specifically a campaign about where you are ruling a kingdom as your PCs, and that actually takes the primary core loop and turns it into how do I defend my kingdom, which still involves fight monsters, get treasure, but it is in a whole, a whole, you know, different spectrum now, right? And like, Vampire's core loop is more along the lines of drink blood, get social status, yeah. Uh, you know, social fuckery. And, and it's interesting. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, I was just thinking it's interesting that Vampire, like the first edition came out in 91. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's really old in role playing terms. Uh, yep. And it's that. interesting that they introduced the. Oh, sorry. I'm <laughs> older than you. So um, it's interesting that they introduced Nature Demeanor, which I was still which was a thing right from the get-go which is not in v5 which i feel a little bit split about i i would have appreciated those tools as well because they always worked so well in creating like the skeleton of a character i'd always start yep. with nature demeanor first be like okay what how is my character actually like which is nature and how do they present themselves to others, the, deme the demeanor? Yeah. And these were system-wise also something you were rewarded with because if you acted along your nature demeanor, you were rewarded with getting willpower points back. Mm -hmm. So it was like a, a, a system that that emphasized a good role-playing, um, which was, in my experience, very revolutionary at the time because it was another, another it was a way of bringing the role playing in the system closer to each other because mm -hmm. i've always felt we're talking dungeons and dragons again now but i've always felt that the very binary one role 
success or failure is such a strange way of, not strange, but it's a very gamey way of approaching uh, mm -hmm. tasks. And I felt that this was at least a way to try to wed the the system with the with the role playing, uh, mm -hmm. and which is also why I'm a little bit salty that it's not around that in the same way <laughs> anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like a lot of times I've gotten into conflicts with other people too because we have such a different frame of reference of what Dungeons and Dragons is. Yep. Um, and uh, usually now, the, the a lot of times you hear, "Well, go to Pathfinder if you want complexity in your Dungeons and Dragons." And that, I, I can I, I can see that. I'm not saying that I've heard that. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I wasn't rolling my eyes at you. I was yeah. rolling my eyes. Yeah, um, it's just I, because I have a friend who's hardcore into uh, optimization in the game. Like he knows every single trait from all the classes in Dungeons and Dragons uh, because he's been playing it for like twenty five right. years or something. So for him, the a lot of the enjoyment comes out of a really challenging combat encounter that everyone works together to fix it. Right. That is not a bad way of approaching a game at all, but it's not the way I would want to play Dungeons and Dragons. So already if we have this kind of communication sessions here, be like, okay, this is my expectation, this is my expectation, I would have been maybe, all right, uh, I won't play this game, I'll run another game in another system yeah. um, will be a different objective, but I'm not gonna step on your fun. And obviously I'm not gonna be having a lot of fun playing this kind of game. So we know that already, I've invested very little time and energy into this game we'll pick up another one instead of 20 sessions down the line i'd be like all right there's been a lot of combat right now wonder when the role playing is going to happen like yeah. because i think a lot of frustration comes out of that with especially with pickup groups yeah right. no uh i'm not gonna lie to you if i'm gonna play if i want to play D D with role playing i'm gonna pick up talislanta what's that oh do you not know about talislanta no it is my favorite D&D heartbreaker. You can actually get all of the books for free on talislanta.org. Uh, they put up all of their books for free. How is that spelled? T-A-L-I-S, Talis, L-A-N-T-A. I will definitely be... Google that. Yeah, it should either be talislanta.org or talislanta.com. Um, but it is a D&D heartbreaker with over 200 races, none of which are elves. Each have their own culture culture and land-specific write-up and how they interact with others. And it's based more on Robert Howard and Lewis Carroll than it is on Tolkien. Ooh, cool. It's super good. Uh, there, there are a lot of weird racial stereotypes, so please feel free to avoid those. Oh God, yeah. Um, but the game itself is very good. It's very simple, um, and like different races, uh, different cultures, and different races have their own kinds of magic, and that's really neat. Hmm, that's cool. Uh, um, so, just for my own brain, we were talking about this because player expectation and managing yes. player expectations yeah, yeah. for uh either modifying or using specific systems <laughs> to then come to an agreement about exactly what you're doing at the table uh is also, also a, a way of consent. getting together on the same page right yes it sure <laughs> is. 
cool. player GM expectations are part of consent, knowing mm. what your players expect and playing to that and knowing what your GM expects and being able to work with that. All are forms of consent. Yeah. Con you know, and consent isn't just, oh my God, this thing is gonna, you know, freak me out and send me into a spiral for days. Consent is also, hey, this thing would uh, be really fun for me. Can we do mm. that? Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, something I tried to cover in a, uh, a recent video of mine is like going through a, a simple lines and veils system. It's just like, a, it's really handy. I did it it's with so my good. home game yeah. and um, it was really useful because I, I learned something about one of my friends and like where not to go in the, in the vampire game that we're playing. But also um, when we'd done like, this is the, these are the lines, these are veils. And I was like, okay, tell me shit you want me to throw at you and they were like werewolves <laughs> and they were like uh make sure there's like deep conspiracy theories to to fuck with us like um yeah I, as you're saying it's not a these are things that we can or just for these are things we can never never incorporate it's for please and it's for those people who are like please fuck up my character <laughs> For, yeah. for whatever reason yeah, yeah. You, wasn't there a lines and veils included in uh change of length of last second edition there sure was yeah. it is all i believe it's also you it's also included in vampire fifth edition i believe yeah. it was a huge inspiration for me as well when i was making the campaign like i was oh, like okay what so do you guys bad. want to have in the game so i agree with josh it's it's great and it's a great way to dodge bullets way before they even become yeah. relevant no, sadly, I cannot take credit for Lines and Veils as my production that was created by uh, Ron Edwards for Sex and Sorcery, which is one of the first American sort of small press indie games. Hmm. Uh, sorry, Sor Sorcerer, not Sorcerer's Crusade, not Sorcerer for Mage, but the game that's just called Sorcerer by Ron Edwards hmm. was one of the first um, U.S. sort of small press indie games that came out. And Sex and Sorcery was a supplement for it that dealt specifically uh, with sex and emotional magic and lines and veils was included in that to be able to deal with that mm. um so yeah no it's it's probably one of my favorites i also really like the version where you do it in a google doc so people can anonymously add things and you can reference it at any point that's, that's cool. yeah mm. Um, I've heard some arguments against it that it puts the thing that you shouldn't be talking about in your mind, so that's what you're going to reference first, and I can see that. Like, the the idea that, oh, I need to do something terrifying, I have a list of things people say I should not do, what if I just went to that? And yes, I have seen that backfire, but again, like it's like any other rule, right? You can't you can't plan for every asshole player eventuality. All you can do is set things up so that people can take care of their own tables and their own friends. Yeah. yeah, which is, that's one of the oddest things I've seen about safety rules recently. It's not not even for the people who are like, safety rules are temper tantrums and terrible and da 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 but people who are ostensibly also caring about the health of their table going, safety rules just provide more things for abusers to exploit and we shouldn't have them because it provides them a system that they can move in. And like, 
I'm sorry. We live in a society. <laughs> like, oh. they have plenty of space to move in. They're, they're going to move in spaces anyway. Like, yeah. this gives us this gives us another space to be able to be clearer and more transparent about things, which then provides us space to not have that gray area that abusers are so good at moving in. Right. And it just baffles me that people are like, it's another system for abusers to move in because abusers move in systems. Like we all move in systems, my dude. Like there's not, there's not much I could do about that. Yes. Somebody is going to misuse safety rules. I hate that. It causes like my stomach to clench thinking about something, someone using safety techniques and safety rules to bully other people at their table. Mm. But people are going, there are people who will just use any set of rules to bully people at the table. And that, I hate that, but it's, it's something I have to write around, right? Yeah. And I have to trust that people are gonna be like, actually, no, that's shitty and you need to stop. Yeah, you, I mean, you can't uh, you can't predict what kind of behavior is going to come to the table, uh, yeah. especially especially if you're running it with people you don't personally know, like at a convention or uh, like a lot of a lot of people go to Reddit for like uh, looking for groups stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we all don't have the luxury of having a solid group that we're playing with. Uh, so obviously, there's going to be occasions when you're going to have to nope out of a game very yeah. very quickly i've had a few of those recently because i yep. i tried foolishly to branch out and be like oh, i'm going to try playing with other people like <laughs> there's a lot of trial and error uh, maybe maybe it's just a matter of my expectations but i i found that one of the absolute best um biggest advantages of running a text-based game for example over discord is that you can very easily um, like in, I'm running a cult game uh, right now and there are certain topics that people don't want to uh, have but I do all visions all matters of personal horror for the player characters I do in separate channels that only they and I can see and then it's up to them if they want to share it with the rest of the group or not and sometimes they won't because there's stuff in there that other people don't want to have and the ability to customize horror is a huge advantage uh, when you're doing something text-based because obviously not as scary as doing it over voice. Um, and I, I feel like any any attempts to not care about your fellow players is immediately a red flag to me. Yep. If, if you're going into a game like I'm here to have fun, I'm here to win. Yeah, um, that's what I was thinking. It's like yeah. the first red flag that someone or the GM at your table is gonna use. It, it the first red flag is not going to be you displaying your uh, lines of veil system or, or whatever so safety thing you're discussing. It's probably gonna uh, have yeah. some warning signs before that. Yeah. yeah. And as Kaylee Evil is saying in the chat, I think it was, yeah, um, not every game is for every player. Uh, if yeah. the whole group but you want to run something, okay, at least they're being open about it. First of all, that's huge. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of other games out there, and there's really no shame in blowing out of a game because it doesn't make you feel comfortable. Yeah, um, yeah sorry. And I think that's really important to talk about because a lot of people uh, get very offended if a game isn't for them. And it's, it, I think it goes back to that geek social fallacy that we were talking yeah, about yeah, exactly. earlier, mm. 
is that ostracizers are evil. So if and friends game do everything together. Yep, exactly. So it's this idea that if a game isn't for you, then you either have to stay in that game and suffer it out because there are, you know, your friends are in that game and therefore you're that's how you're going to see your friends. Yeah. Or, you know, you, you bow out and then you're ostracized and then you're mad at them and then it becomes this whole thing. Like, I've seen people in Vampire LARPs who described their storyteller casually as like an abusive boyfriend they couldn't get rid of but they kept going to the larp because that was how they got in their role play and i'm like you don't have to do that no i say you could do something else yeah and i think it's um bringing this awareness to people i think is worth so much more than the ire of the occasional person who writes a long review on drive through RPGs claiming how this is ruining ruining their game. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's uh that's just, that's a casualty we'll have to live with. Alas. But uh hopefully a lot of people will at least see the potential in it. Like again, don't have to use this kind of stuff if you don't want to, but it's there for a reason. It's it's useful. Uh I think we're about we have to start rounding up unfortunately because we usually only do two hour episodes. Mm-hmm. But is there anything else you any of you want to bring up like an example or or finishing words i've had the great luck of playing with you guys who are you know super awesome so i never felt uncomfortable at any time but uh you know it just it makes me it makes me a sad sad i don't know if sad is the right word but that's what i'm going to use that there are people who have been you know people probably who are already traumatized and having been re-traumatized just trying to play a game and have fun it makes me sad yeah yeah so i'm glad there are these safety rules and i'm glad we're living in a time where people are actually i know not everyone we're actually trying to take considerations for people and i just bought my microphone (laughs) uh i also want to resemble those remarks Um, (laughs) it's uh a great pleasure to have been playing with the people i i have been um but also knowing that at any point if i'm like eh, everyone will be able to respect that and uh, finding finding the people that um that you can have that kind of comfort with is super important and everyone i hope finds that that group in their life it would yeah. be wonderful yeah, yeah, that's that's something that I, as someone who has done safety design on several games, just really wants for everyone in the world right now, is that you just have that group that you feel comfortable and safe and seen in. That's all I want. Yeah, I agree. Having a good time. And, yeah, and for the love of God, if there's something in your game that's bothering you, talk with Say something. Person. Please yeah, say speak something. up. Yeah. Nobody, like... Okay, I can't guarantee that nobody's going to get mad, but everyone is going to feel much better about it afterwards. Also, if someone gets mad, that's probably a good yeah, sign. Not, like, yeah, maybe, exactly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's not going to improve if you don't say anything. And role-playing is not supposed to be suffering for you. It's supposed to be suffering for your characters. Yeah. <laughs> or your players' characters, if you're the storyteller. Absolutely. Only if they consented to that. Exactly. Yes. All right. And I think we all learned that thoroughly today. <laughs> yes. uh, it was extremely enlightening. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you for joining for us. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, this, this was great. If you guys want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Rufflejacks. 
Um, you can also find me at JacquelineBrick.design, which is my uh, professional website. And yeah, please follow me on the Twitters. Yeah, absolutely. I post um, about a lot of stuff. Yeah, Animal Crossing more recently. I've been following. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I've fallen deep into that pit as well. Yeah. Oh, I'm the only one who hasn't, apparently. Come I know nothing about Animal that. Crossing. Come to my island. I don't have, I have cherries. I don't know if about anyone. <laughs> I have cherries too. I, I'm too cheap to pay for online gaming. I'm sorry. Oh. Um, I got the seven day free trial because my oh, Twitch Prime thing ran out. Nice. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, thank you everyone for watching and the VOD or the VOD will be available in roughly a week on my channel on YouTube. Uh, it's available here as well, obviously. So subscribe to Josh to watch it right away if you missed the beginning. Uh, and we will hopefully be back soon, um, sooner than between this episode and last. And uh, however many months that is. <laughs> I was about to say the same thing. Yeah. We will be, uh, some of us at least, will be at uh, Virtual Horror Con yes. this weekend. Yes. which you should come watch streams on. I think I'm actually on um, a a uh, panel with Chris. I'm not sure, though. I think so. I, uh, think, dragging, you, yeah, I think you two are on a panel. Dragging Lovecraft into the 21st. No, I'm not on that and one. And it's the future of V5? No. Oh, I'm on... Oh, boo. I'm on... Um, Actually, why don't you tell people what you're on, and I'll tell people what I'm on. Well, those those two are the ones I'm going to be on. <laughs> Dragging Lovecraft into the 21st century, screaming and kicking, I believe. <laughs> and the future of uh, v Vampire the Masquerade V5. That's fun. Yeah, I'm on Tone and Atmosphere in Horror, uh, Horror in LARP, and Safety and Consent in Horror Gaming. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> looking forward to watching those and Hell yeah uh, will you be running any games as well uh i did offer to run a LARP, uh, digital larp as we know it but i haven't seen it on the schedule so i don't know if that's happening they, they've had so many games like i uh, i was lucky i got in very early i'm, I'm gonna be running mm -hmm. uh two cult games uh, so nice. yeah, like i was talking about in the beginning i'm just gonna make sure that i have backups just in case there's something that somebody uh is gonna be worried about but i got time to prepare for that it's only hooray five days <laughs> you can do it i believe in you i hope so <laughs> Huddy, where can we find you pardon where can we find you and all your amazing stuff that you do yeah oh, oh <laughs> i'm like i'm not gonna be in virtual horror con um <laughs> i'll be watching that's all i'll be doing but um i'm i'm on youtube i don't do twitch even though josh thinks that i should do twitch and um you should i have According to uh, Vampire Masquerade stuff, I do Masquerade Monday every Monday. Lately, I've been recapping LA by Night videos, um, which are doing quite well on my channel, and people seem to really like them. They like them so much, I put a poll out saying, don't you guys just want me to condense all five one-hour <laughs> epilogues into one video? And like 80% of them said, no, I want a video for every epilogue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, that's, that's me. That's what I do. Terry. Perfect. Uh, and I am Josh. If you're watching this right now, you're either on Primogen's channel or on my Twitch channel. So follow me there. Uh, right after this, you will be able to find me in like an hour over on Daddy Sheepdoo on Twitch. We're playing Vampire 5th Edition, a game called Sunkiss. Nice. Yay! Which is, nice. is really exciting. And we are in a state of um, tumult and turf wars. Oh boy. Nice. It is I love it. 
pretty intense. And I hope everyone enjoys. So uh, catch me there. That's really exciting. On Strange Adventures on YouTube, where I, I uh, oh, I released a video like I was saying earlier about um, <laughs> uh, that includes lines and veils as a tool for session zeros, but in general, how to as a beginner player start your first vampire campaign if that's something you're interested with uh, help with so yeah go go there or don't that's fine go me. there do it oh yeah that, right that one's the other. uh so yeah thank you everyone for watching Hopefully yes you thank, you. Thank, you. thank you thank you bye bye bye, bye. bye. bye.